Everybody, welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group. To prepare for our three-minute big, to prepare for our Big Book Study, let's get focused by having a three-minute moment of silent meditation, followed by the fog light prayer. Good evening, everybody. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Mike Chase, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. And my name is Chris. Hey, Chris. Thanks for joining us tonight. We're going to start the meditation in a couple minutes, so please take a moment to get situated. Please spread out. Get comfortable. Don't be cuddling up all over each other. This is meditation. Please turn off all devices that make noise or will distract others for the duration of this meeting. Uh, the coffee area is in the back. If you need to go get some more, just be consider the folks around you. Don't make a big dramatic deal out of it. Also, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. Uh, for meditation, some suggestions are actually just you know, sit up straight. Try to get as uncomfortable as you can because that will keep you in the moment. Uh, breathe in through your nose and just feel it go in. Just let it hang out in your lungs and meditate. meditate what is that? Percolate. Percolate a little in there and then let it out. Of the... Can you do that continually for three minutes? And I guarantee you'll be in such a, such a happy place. You breathe in God and breathe out self. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a lot too. of God. Let's uh, take the time to get reconnected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the study. So the lights are going on. Brian's going to lock the doors. So we don't have people come in and distract us. Lights go down. Enjoy your time with God. Everybody just close your eyes and enjoy. And the monks will come in next.
shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost safe can die and find your love through me. Has anybody been able to find a time in the day where they can just sit back and do a five minute meditation in the middle of the day? Like at lunch or something like that. You, did you do that? Everybody shoot for that. Find some time throughout that crazy day to just chill for five minutes and then recharge yourself a little bit. Speaking of recharging ourselves, we've got our secretary's report, and that's Ms. Tanisha. Let's give her a rousing, energetic applause for Tanisha. <clears throat> Hi, who are you? Hi, my name is Tanisha, and I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. Hey, Tanisha. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states, every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. And I've asked Tyrell to read the recovered statement. Come on up, Tyrell. <laughs> Give him some Come on, buddy. We read this notice to explain why many Recovery people notes. in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Uh, Tyrell, uh, recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic allergic reactions to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was a problem. The main problem of alcoholics centers in his mind rather than his body, rather than in the body, sorry. We are now saying where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we are recovered. Thank you. Yes, next week, every week now for the next month. (laughs) (laughs) 1940-style big book sponsorship from forward to second edition Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sobered at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, came to believe, and experienced is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. In the back, we have CDs, mugs, large print big books, the little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. 
And Mike is back there to make a deal. Ready to make a deal? <laughs> we meet every Monday promptly at 7.15, but some of us show up at 5.30 to help set up, and some of us also show up at 6.30 just to fellowship and get to know each other. Um, we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the Road to Recovery tune. See you next week. Thank you. From four to the first edition of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. We have Alcoholics Anonymous for more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this group and of this book. From there is a solution also from the big book. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. This isn't open to me. As such, all who have interest in alcoholism and the program of recovery are welcome. But because this is an open meeting, you need not identify yourself nor your reason for being here if you do not wish to do so. Your anonymity will be protected. We ask that you protect ours and on anonymity. This is going to be podcast on the World Wide Web. What's so that mean? If you do not want your voice to be heard out there on the Internet, then just disguise it or pass the microphone when it comes time. Yeah, we record it and then added out uh, accidental names and stuff like that and then pop it on the Internet at the, after this. Can, uh, can I see a show of hands of people just join us for the very first time? Never been here before? Raise your hands. Cool. What's your name? Where are you all from? Quick. Everybody stand up and just say who you are, where you're from. Let's give a, a quick hello. Where are you from? Start off over here. I'm Tiara. I'm from Texas. Hey, we'll say hi when they're all done. I'm David from South Carolina. Hi, David. Hi. I'm Tracy from Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Tracy. I'm Tess from North Carolina. Hi, Tess. I'm Wendy. I'm from Canada. Hi. Hi. I'm Daryl from South Africa. Hey, Daryl. Daryl. Dave from Vermont. Hey, Dave. Ooh, Vermont. Logan from Tennessee. Hey, Logan. Hey, Meg from Cleveland, Ohio. Hey, Meg. Hey. I'm Tyrell, and I wish I could say somewhere cool like New York, but I'm from Florida. Yeah. <laughs> Jen, I'm from Fort Lauderdale. Hey, Jen, one more over here. And last but not least. Oh, oh, I'm Megan. I'm from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Let's give a real welcome. That was kind of fun, huh? It sure was. Can we shake it up. Can we get a show of hands of recovered alcoholics now? Anybody and leave your hands up, you recovered folks. If your hand's not up, I suggest you talk to the folks whose hands are. They'll get you connected together through the book of Alcoholics Anonymous and give you a life beyond your wildest dreams. While this is an open meeting, membership in this group is limited to those who wish to recover oh, from alcoholism dear. and have a desire to stop drinking for good and all. Each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a potential sponsor of a new member and should clearly recognize the obligations and duties of such a responsibility. At this time, who doesn't have a book right in front of you? It's a big book study, so if you don't have a book in front of you, pop your hands up, we'll get one to you. Okay. Before we begin the study of the big book, last week we reviewed Tradition 11, 11 and tonight let's take a quick uh, review of Tradition 12. Please refer to the unabridged book, page 562, that's the fatty patty, and the abridged version, page 177. And welcome Ryan. And this will be Ryan's last night doing this, so everybody pay attention. This is the most important one, I guess. He's held everything to the last. All right. Hey, everyone. I'm Ryan. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hey, Ryan. Uh, and tonight we're reviewing Tradition 12. Um, so, in the short form, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. And then in the long form, and finally, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the principle of anonymity 
has an immense spiritual significance. It reminds us that we are to place principles before personalities, that we are actually to practice a, gen a genuine humility. This to the end that our great blessings may never spoil us, that we shall forever live in thankful contemplation of him who presides over us all. All right. All right, so while I was reading about Tradition 12, uh, it got me thinking of what anonymity means to us. Uh, not only does it have its practical value, uh, but more importantly, the word anonymous has a strong spiritual significance. Um, it reminds us that we must always place principles before personalities, and it gives us an opportunity to not only preach, uh, but to also practice a truly humble modesty. Um, I read a pretty interesting story in Language of the Heart that I want to share with you. Um, in an article titled A Tradition Born of Our Anonymity, Bill Wilson writes about how the book Alcoholics Anonymous came to be called Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, he writes that in the years before the publication, the group didn't have a name for their movement. Um, and he says, we were just a group of drinkers groping our way along what we hoped would be the road to freedom. Um, it wasn't long before they decided that they wanted to write a book where they could tell other alcoholics the good news. Um, and it was the product of thousands of hours of discussion, and Bill writes that it truly represented the collective voice, heart, and conscience of those of us who had pioneered the first four years of AA. Uh, the book was almost ready to be published, and the group was trying to figure out a name, and thinking up titles and voting on them at meetings became one of their main activities. Uh, but finally, they narrowed the search down to two choices, The Way Out or Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and a last-minute vote was taken by the Akron and New York groups, and by a narrow majority, they decided to name the book The Way Out. Um, but right before the book went to print, somebody suggested that there, that there might be other books with the same name. So Fitz Mayo, one of the AA pioneers, went over to the Library of Congress to look into it. He discovered that there were actually 12 books titled The Way Out. Uh, when he passed this information along to the others, nobody seemed very excited about becoming the 13th way out. So now Alcoholics Anonymous became the first and only choice. And that's how they got the name for the book of experience, the name for the movement, and a tradition of the utmost spiritual importance. Uh, so why do we need a tradition of anonymity? Uh, from the reading I've done, there seems to be varied opinions about that. Some groups want to conduct themselves like a secret society, uh, while others want to invite anyone into the meeting and spread the good news of Alcoholics Anonymous. Both are right. Uh, the subject of anonymity comes down to individual and group discretion. So I guess the question I need to ask myself is, what does anonymity mean to me? Uh, besides being a fun word to hear Mike Chase mis mispronounce, I think that anonymity means that if I want to tell people about my experience with AA, that's my choice. Um, I personally have never really struggled with the, de the decision of letting people know I was a member of AA. I've also been fortunate to be put in a position of helping others after sharing my experience. Um, I know some people are more hesitant to share that information, so in the spirit of anonymity, uh, that's something I have to respect. Um, and I also understand that anything I share at a meeting or with a sponsor is shared in confidence. Uh, there's nothing I can't talk about with one of my alcoholic brothers or sisters out of fear of my comments being passed, passed on to the wrong person. Uh, for me, it was this, this level of trust that keeps me coming back. Um, so I just want to close this off with something else that I read out of Language of the Heart. Uh, that I feel like wraps this up pretty well. Great modesty and humility are needed by every AA for his own, per his own permanent recovery. If these virtues are such vital needs to the individual, so they must be to AA as a whole. This principle of anonymity before the general public can, if we take it seriously enough, guarantee the, alcohol the Alcoholics Anonymous movement these sterling attributes forever. So that is what I got on Tradition 12, and I just want to thank the group for letting me do this for the past 12 weeks. Um, I definitely feel like I learned a lot from doing it, and I hope that I was able to pass that on. So thank you.
Thank you, Ryan. That was just one of the best 12 weeks I've ever had up there. Thank you. You did great. Did you save all your notes and stuff? In case we get somebody who's not as good, they can just read them next time around? Good. Um, In order for us to stay focused as we study the big book, we use the big book study guide, which was prepared by Krusty Cliff with the help of Joe and Charlie of the Dallas and Krusty Cliff's of the Dallas Primary Purpose Group. And tonight, is that Ooh. Robert I see with a microphone on his ear? Yeah, Robert's going to, gonna, tonight we're going to begin reading on where? We are going to start reading in the skinny mini on 168 and on the fatty patty, 174. Yeah, actually we're gonna 173-ish yeah. ballpark, right? Cool. So Robert, welcome back. It's nice to see you here. So who's going to do our traditions next time around, you ask? I, I heard tell it was the man with the microphone. Robert, on so we're ear. giving him some microphone voice, checking his voice so they can start working on the, adjusting the equalization of his voice back. Um, so what happens is he's going to read the few pages from the front, and after we read that, we're going to ask questions from the podium starting at the top of the page we started at. The answers will be one sentence unless otherwise specified, and multi-part questions are simply one sentence split up by... Commas, semicolons, hyphens, and other fun bits of punctuality. Basically, in English, what that means is that we're going to read the material once through and then re-dissect the information a second time through the question-and-answer format. Notice how the language in the questions gives us a new light in which to consider the study material. This is important because hearing the question and rereading the content offers a definite way of comprehending the material just covered. After we've completed the page, we open up for comments, questions, and observations based on what we just read. If you have spiritual experience with the information, feel free to share. And if you don't, feel free to listen. However, Big Book Study is not therapy. Should you begin sharing about topics which are more appropriately discussed in a different, i.e. sponsorship, halfway manager setting, please do not be offended when Rob cuts that conversation short. For that purpose, we have fellowship meetings before and after our study time. We can never go wrong by commenting on the page, which brings us to the words of the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sobriety, freedom from alcohol through the teachings and practices of the 12 steps is the sole purpose of an Alcoholics Anonymous group. Now, when we started uh, 84 weeks ago on page zero. Page zero. And uh, that's about the history of AA. We have the first promise, which is how... Many hundreds of men and women have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, recovered from alcoholism, and then we have the the history of AA. If we're going to get involved in this fellowship for the rest of our lives, it's a good idea that we know about how it started and how it's maintained, and we get a hint of what the traditions are all about. After the preface and the forewords, they kind of describe what the fellowship of AA is and the history of the book. Then we have a chapter called The Doctor's Opinion, which goes in to explain what alcoholism is and start to explain what alcohol isn't. It's an opportunity to find out the mental and the physical aspects of alcoholism, the spiritual malady he touches on from a, from a medical way, because if you think about it, the forewords was written by a bunch of drunks, and we needed somebody to give us some street credibility, so we had a doctor come in next, and that doctor was Dr. Silkworth. So the information that we learned in the forewords and in the doctor's opinion, was brought to life in a chapter called? Bill's Story. So we're talking about the ideas from the doctor's opinion that Bill Wilson learned from Dr. Silkworth and how they came to life in Bill Wilson's life. And he talks about uh, going away as a war hero and then having this uh, token of appreciation from the men of his battery and then thinking that he's going to prove to the world that he's important. And Bill's alloy was drink and speculation. He worked on Wall Street and he commenced to forge the weapon that would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut him to ribbons. So he ended up in alcoholic despair, and then he found a solution through his friend, Ebby. And that solution was spiritual 
in nature to tell us more about the solution. They have a chapter called There is a Solution, where it explains why and how a spiritual experience is necessary to recover from alcoholism. But how do I know if I'm a real alcoholic? We got a whole chapter on that called More About Alcoholism, a.k.a. the chapter on relapse. It talks about the mental state that precedes a relapse into drinking. And there's some very colorful examples in the chapter, More About Alcoholism, that talk about the mental obsession part of this disease. And then if, and we realize that just knowing about the solution isn't enough, we actually have to do the solution. And if we have a problem with the idea of God, we have an, or we don't know if we have a problem or not, we have an entire chapter called... We agnostic. So we're painting ourselves in the corner. I'm an alcoholic at this point, probably. I've decided I'm an alcoholic. So I have no other way up but to develop a relationship with this thing. They keep calling God and higher power. I don't know what one is. I don't know if I ever want one, if I've ever had one. I am completely confused when I came in the room. So this whole chapter just allows me to rediscover a relationship, my old ideas and beliefs, my prejudices, lay them out on a table and say, I, I, I have no choice but start fresh. And hopefully I got a, I, for myself, I came through we agnostics perfectly willing to start a relationship with God which uh, meant I had to do some work, and that's where we have a chapter called How It Works. In How It Works, we lay out the 12 steps, and then we have a third-step prayer. It says, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. And the, uh, and the simple program is the 12 steps. It lays out the third-step prayer and the instructions for how to write a fourth-step inventory. And after that chapter, we get in. We get into action, the chapter six. In the fourth step, we've discovered the resentments, the fears, the sexual contact, and the harms, the stuff that's blocked me from God. And as a good alcoholic, I can look at my four steps and determine my four step and determine that I've done enough, I'm great, I'm ready to move on. But as a good alcoholic, I also realize that I have to have somebody call me on my doo-doo. Because I can look at my four step and see certain things, but if I ask somebody else, i.e. my sponsor, to review my four step with me, then he points out the things I don't see because it's basically impossible for, for me to look honestly at myself as an inventory. So I've got this sponsor. He brings me through a fifth step. We discover my character defects. I ask God in steps six and seven to take these away. In steps seven and eight, I start to correct my life with the people around me, the people I've harmed through steps, a list of, you know, list of my harms, and then I make direct amends to people. And then I have this opportunity to, to grow and understand it and not become an untreated alcoholic again. So I got step 10 as I go through the day. I keep myself from getting in trouble and getting blocked from God. And step 11, a specific great one-on-one direction on how to develop this relationship with God, which is necessary for me to stay happy, joyous, and free. And now that I've got this relationship with God, I have this ability to keep this relationship with God, and I've got directions on how to get this relationship with God. We've got a chapter on how to pass it off, because nothing will so ensure immunity from alcohol than casually work with other alcoholics, right? I believe it says intensive work intensive with other alcoholics. Intensive work with other Okay, I apologize. And, and by the way, how many steps are there in the chapter into seven, action? Seven steps in one chapter. That's a lot of content. And then we got an entire chapter dedicated to working with others. And this is more so about how to make the approach, how to relate to the alcoholic that you're going to be helping. And it's not necessarily a guide on here's how you sponsor people, but it's how to maybe get to that point where you're ready to do that. It also says that uh, yeah, there's a lot of conditions that we're going to have to meet if we're doing this AA thing and we're trying to help people live this new way of life. You may have to, somebody might burn a mattress, they might smash your furniture, you might have to fight with them if they're violent, but uh, occasionally we have to meet such conditions, right? And then we have some other chapters that are outside of the 12 steps directly, but they talk about this way of life. We have uh, three more chapters to the wives, to the family afterwards, and to the employers, which we like to refer to as pre-Alanon. As dad or mom, the alcoholic or the boyfriend was getting sober in the main living room of the house, 
house back in the old days, the, the, the wives and the family and the boyfriends possibly be in the kitchen or in, out on the porch doing the exact same thing. It's a, it was a family disease and there's a family solution. So we had a chapter to the wives, to the family afterwards, and to the employers, which was valuable information in helping us but helping other alcoholics to find a solution. And then after we've been sober for a couple of months, it's sometimes fun to read. A vision for you. And we talk about the kind of life that we're going to be living, hopefully, if we're walking the spiritual path and how uh, we're either going to be, well, drinking, I don't miss it at all. And uh, actually, we laugh at such a Sally because that's somebody that's a boy whistling in the dark, right? Anybody ever been a boy whistling in the dark? I know I, know, I, know I have. And that's like, I don't miss drinking at all. Doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother me in this whole sobriety thing. We, we get uh, conviviality and, and affection and this sense of closeness from drinking. And now we get that from the fellowship and from sponsoring. And if we're not getting these promises and we're not getting the things outlined in a vision for you, then chances are we're, we're missing some of the ingredients to bake this recovery cake. The, uh, that's true. You know, a vision for you could be a good wake-up call for the person who, who's been through the steps, had a spiritual experience, and then decides to maybe just rest on the old laurels for a little while, you know? If you start reading vision for you and a lot of that stuff seems sort of alien and like, golly gee, I'm not doing this kind of stuff. You might want to take a second look at your program and get on the get on the get on the ball and start doing some stuff. Um, it's very appropriate for us to wrap it up with uh, Dr. Bob's nightmare. We started off, you know, with Bill's story. We had a bunch of stories going through it, but uh, you know, Dr. Bob also being the other co-founder was is vitally important to us getting to be better. Um, how many people came into Alcoholics Anonymous other issues? Any andas in the room? You know, alcoholic and a drug addict, alcoholic and a gambler, alcohol. Okay, we got a bunch of andas in the room. Oh, we can talk about our andas this week, you know, because Dr. Bob was an anda too. So we're going to find out uh, how his life is tonight. We're going to wrap up a college. He's going to do some college, and then we're going to find out what it was like. Uh, I always think it. So he, he didn't make it as a salesman, so he, gets, he goes to college, barely makes it through college, and becomes a doctor. I just, what were the tests like back then? I should have been a doctor back then. I probably could have been one. So we're going to start on page 173, just tee up. Is that what we said? Yeah. Uh, and in the skinny mini version, that's going to be page 167. And the questions are going to begin on 168 in the skinny version. It's 173, 174 in the large, unabridged version. And, and to tee up a little bit about Dr. Bob, yeah, we definitely, you know, if you look at Bill W., the, the, the opposites of so many parts of the life, you know, Bill W. was brought, in, in, in a, brought up in a family that was absence of any spirituality. He, as a matter of fact, he was brought up in a family that was sort of like poo-pooed the whole church and religious type stuff. Um, there, there were more um, scientific and those type of people. Whereas Dr. Bob was the opposite. He was raised in a really fundamentalist Christian life. life and um, as soon as he didn't have to go to church, he didn't have to. But he had some concept with religion. And, and Bill didn't, so it's sort of fun to see these two guys get together and come up with a program based on God when it gets right down to it, right? So why don't you start reading from, oh, we'll start at 172, which would be in your book. It's going to be one, okay, 172. So this is actually the next three years I spent in, yeah, yeah, 160. The next three years I spent in Boston. We're going to yeah. pick up the college, do a little bit of college, and get into his happy life. Hi, my name's Rob. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hey, Rob. You gentlemen did a beautiful job with that recap. Thank you very much. say that. And Recovery Cake is delicious. You can clap. It's cool. They did awesome. That was a lot of content. By the way, and, uh, he's going to pick up the next 12 weeks doing the traditions, and then at the end of his 12 weeks, I'm rotating out finally, and he's going <laughs> to hopefully rotate in and take over so I can sit in the back and 
have fun. So heckle he's gonna everybody. Be, he's going to yeah. heckle them a little bit. Yeah, Spiro, awesome. Around here with the Spirit Rotations, we go through one series. So my series will be ending, and then he's going to pick up, which is kind of cool. Very exciting. All right. Uh, we're going to start on 166 in the skinny minis at the bottom here. The next three years I spent in Boston, Chicago, and Montreal in the employee of a large manufacturing concern selling railway supplies, gas engines of all sorts, and many other items of heavy hardware. During these years, I drank as much as my purse permitted, still without paying too great a penalty, although I was beginning to have morning jitters at times. I lost only a half day's work during these three years. My next move was to take up the study of medicine, entering one of the largest universities in the country. There, I took up the business of drinking with much greater earnestness than I had previously shown. On account of my enormous capacity for beer, I was elected to membership in one of the drinking societies and soon became one of the leading spirits. Many mornings I have gone to classes and even though fully prepared, would turn and walk back to the fraternity house because of my jitters, not daring to enter the classroom for fear of making a scene should I be called on for recitation. This went from bad to worse until sophomore spring when, after a pro prolonged period of drinking, I made up my mind that I could not complete my course, so I packed my grip and went south to spend a month on a large farm owned by a friend of mine. When I got the when I got the fog out of my brain, I decided that quitting school was very foolish and that I had better return and continue my work. When I reached school, I discovered the faculty had other ideas on the subject. After much argument, they allowed me to return and take my exams, all of which I passed creditably, but they were much disgusted and told me they would attempt to struggle along without my presence. After many painful discussions, they finally gave me my credits, and I migrated to another of the leading universities of the country and entered as a junior that fall. There, my drinking became so much worse that the boys in the fraternity house where I lived felt forced to send for my father, who made a long journey in the vain endeavor to get me straightened around. This had little effect, however, for I kept on drinking and used a great deal more hard liquor than in former years. Coming up to final exams, I went on a particularly strenuous spree. When I went in to write the examinations, my hand trembled so I could not hold a pencil. I passed in at least three absolutely blank books. I was, of course, soon on the carpet, and the upshot was that I had to go back for two more quarters and remain absolutely dry if I wished to graduate. This I did and proved myself satisfactory to the faculty, both in deportment and scholastically. I conducted myself so creditably that I was able to secure a much-coveted internship in a western city where I spent two years. During these two years, I was kept so busy that I hardly left the hospital at all. Consequently, I could not get into any trouble. When those two years were up, I opened an office downtown. I had some money, all the time in the world, and considerable stomach trouble. I soon discovered that a couple of drinks would alleviate my gastric distress, at least for a few hours at a time, so it was not at all difficult for me to return to my former excessive indulgence. By this time, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically and, in hope of relief, voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. I was between Scylla and Char Charibus now, because if I did not drink, my stomach tortured me, and if I did, my nerves did the same thing. After three years of this, I wound up in the local hospital where they attempted to help me, but I would get my friends to smuggle me a court or I would steal the alcohol about the building so that I got rapidly worse. Finally, my father had to send a doctor out from my hometown 
who managed to get me back there in some way, and I was in a bed about two months before I could venture out of the house. I stayed about town for a couple of months more and then returned to resume my practice. I think I must have been thoroughly scared by what happened, or by the doctor, or probably both, so that I did not touch a drink again until the country went dry. With the passing of the 18th Amendment, I felt quite safe. I knew everyone would buy a few bottles or cases of liquor as their... I squeers? As, as <laughs> permitted. As checkers? Someone's going to correct me, smart people. And that it would soon be gone. Therefore, it would make no great difference, even if I should do some drinking. At that time, I was not aware of the almost unlimited supply the government made it possible for us doctors to obtain. Neither had I any knowledge of the bootlegger who soon appeared on the horizon. I drank with moderation at first, but it took me only a relatively short time to drift back into the old habits which had wound up so disastrously before. During the next few years, I developed two distinct phobias. One was the fear of not sleeping, and the other was the fear of running out of liquor. Not being a man of means, I knew that if I did not stay sober enough to earn money, I would run out of liquor. Most of the time, therefore, I did not take the morning drink, which I craved so badly, but instead would fill up on large doses of sedatives to, to quiet the jitters, which distressed me terribly. Occasionally, I would yield the morning, to the morning craving, but if I did, it would be only a few hours before I would be quite unfit for work. This would lessen my chances of smuggling some home that evening, which in turn would mean a night of futile tossing around in bed, followed by a morning of unbearable jitters. During the subsequent 15 years, I had a sense enough never to go to the hospital if I had been drinking, and very seldom did I receive patients. I would sometimes hide out in one of the clubs of which I was a member and had the habit at times of registering at a hotel under a fictitious name. But my friends usually found me, and I would go home if they promised that I should not be scolded. If my wife was planning to go out in the afternoon, I would get a large supply of liquor and smuggle it home and hide it in the coal bin and, and the, clo the clothes chute, over door jams, over beams in the cellar, and cracks in the cellar tile. I also made use of old trunks and chests, the old can container, and even the ash container. The water tank on the toilet I never used because that looked too easy. I found out later that my wife inspected it frequently. Got her. I used to put 8 or 12-ounce bottles of alcohol in a fur-lined glove and toss it into the back airing porch when winter days got dark enough. My bootlegger had hidden alcohol at the back steps where I could get it at my convenience. Sometimes I would bring it in my pockets, but they were inspected, and that became too risky. I used also to put it in 4-ounce bottles and stick several in my stocking tops. This worked nicely until my wife and I went to see Wallace Beery in Tugboat Annie, after which the pant leg and stocking racket were out. I know. I will not take space to relate all my hospital or sanitarium experiences. So we'll pause there and start asking, start asking questions from 174. And that's 168 in the, the bridge 168 version. in that. Oh, are you going to run around tonight? Do you want, you want me to? Yeah, you can run okay. around. All right. <laughs> He just jumped right at that, didn't he? Well, I, I heard you say move my mic to the front. 168. The uh, second full paragraph. With final exams coming up, what did he do? Coming up to final exams, I went on a particularly strenuous spree. What problem did he experience as a result of this spree? When I went in to write the examinations, uh, my hand trembled so I could not hold a pencil. 
Has anyone ever trembled by not drinking? Oh, good. <laughs> Yay. Um, what did he turn out? What did he turn in for his tests? I passed in at least three absolutely blank books. Two-part question. As a result, what was he forced to do? And part B, what requirement was placed on him? I was, of course, soon on the carpet, and the upshot was that I had to go back for two more quarters and remain absolutely dry if I wished to graduate. Was he successful? This I did and proved myself satisfactory to the faculty, both in deportment and Okay, next question. Uh, Next paragraph, actually. As a result of staying dry and giving school his best shot, what did he receive? I conducted myself so credibly that I was able to secure a much-coveted internship in a western city where I spent two years. Uh, How did those two years go? This is two sentences. During these two years, I was kept so busy that I hardly left the hospital at all. Consequently, I could not get into any trouble. Good. Next paragraph. At the end of the two years, what did Dr. Bob do? When those two years were up, I opened an office downtown. Yeah, good. What was it he had at the time? I had some money. All the time in the world and considerable stomach trouble. Thank you. Two-part question. Um, They did. What did he soon discover and be? So what happened then? By this time, I was beginning. I soon discovered. uh, I soon discovered that a couple of drinks would alleviate my gastric distress at least for a few hours at a time. So it was not at all difficult for me to return to my former excessive indulgence. Thank you. Next paragraph. And it is a two-part, I think, two-part, yep, two-part. Um, was he still enjoying his drinking? And B, seeking relief, what did he do? By this time, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically and in hope of relief, voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. Um, how, who's, who's been in detoxes, rehabs more than five times, eight times, nine times? Any ten, any dozen folks are in the house? Cool. Dr. Bob's in the house. Next question. Um, oh, comment, by the way. Off the Italian... Oh, that's not where that goes. Okay. Um, why did Dr. Bob say what? I was... I was between Scylla <laughs> and Charbertus now because if I had... If I did not drink, my stomach tortured me, and if I did, the nerves did the same thing. So, off the Italian coast is a rock, Sicilia, we'll call it, opposite a whirlpool called Cheriboidetus, possibly the source of the expression between a rock and a hard place. Why that three-part question, is Scott in the house? Okay, he usually gets Want to give that to Scott? (laughs) Thanks. He's good at these three-part questions. Um, at the end of three years, what happened? What did he persuade his friends to do? Or he resorted to what? After three years of this, I wound up in the local hospital where they attempted to help me. But I, could, I would get my friends to smuggle me a quart 
or I would steal the alcohol about the building so they could get rapidly worse. It's not like you know, they didn't have like Johnny Walker and uh, Regus and Popoff. He's talking about drinking the actual, you know, when they put alcohol in the cotton swabs and get ready for the needles. That's what he was chugging. So this, this guy was uh, classy. Um, Two-part question. At this point, what did his father do and how long was, that, was he confined? Finally, my father had to send a doctor out from my, from my hometown who managed to get me back there in some way. And I was in bed about two months before I could venture out of the house. At the end of the two months, what did he do? I, I, stayed, about, uh, I yeah. stayed about town a couple of months more and then returned to re, uh, resume my practice. This episode scared him sufficiently to cause him to do what? I think I must have been thoroughly scared by what had happened or by the doctor or probably both so that I did not touch a drink again until the country went dry. Um, Next paragraph. What constitutional amendment gave him a sense of security? With the passing of the 18th Amendment, I felt quite safe. Uh, This amendment prohibition went into effect from 1920 and ended in 1933. Uh, Next question. Why did he believe that? I knew everyone would buy a few bottles or cases of liquor as the exchequerers permitted and that it would soon be gone. That word, which I'm not even going to try to say, refers to uh, reserves or financial uh, other people's money. Exchequerers, yes. Like your savings account, fancy talk. Um, consequently, it would make no great difference even if he what? Therefore, therefore it would make uh, no great difference even if I should do some drinking. Um, what two things was he aware of? At that time, I was not aware of the almost unlimited supply the government made it possible for us doctors to obtain. Neither had I any knowledge of the bootlegger who soon appeared on the horizon. Who had a bootlegger? Who bought, who bought little packets and little plastic bags and stuff? Okay. And, and then you'd had it delivered. And so he's sort of like us a little bit in that area, isn't it? Um, two-part question. So how did he start drinking? What happened in short time? I drank with moderation at first, but it took me only a relatively short time to drift back into the old habits, which had wound up so disastrously before. Who can relate to that? Doesn't talk about that in the doc and more about alcoholism a few times. That's brought up a lot, I think. Um, over the next two years, what happened? During the next few years, I developed two distinct phobias. What one, were they? <laughs> one was the fear of not sleeping, and the other was the fear of running out of liquor. Great. Next question, and that is a oh, just a two-part question. Uh, since he was not blessed with an abundance of money, what was he forced to do? And the result of that would be what? Not being a man of means, I knew that if I did not stay sober enough to earn money, I would run out of liquor. Yeah. Um, who could? Yeah. Most of this time, how did Dr. Bob handle this need? Most of the time, therefore, I did not take the morning drink, which I craved so badly, but instead would fill up on large doses of sedatives to quiet the jitters, which distressed me terribly. Who had a a, a big, like an overnight event, 
and you had to like take some non-conference approved substance to like get you through the day because you did have to show up to work. Who could relate to that? Yeah, we quite the little chemists we turned into. Um, but occasionally he would do what? Was that what I said? Was that the question I just asked? That's oh good. But occasionally he would do what? Occasionally I would yield to the morning craving. But if yeah. I did, it would be only a few hours before I would be quite unfit for work. Two-part question. And this is not because it lessened the chances to do what, which in turn would mean what? <laughs> this would lessen my chances of smuggling some home that evening, which in turn would mean a night of futile tossing around in bed followed by a morning of unbearable jitters. Who suffered dope sickness? Alcoholics have the same thing. We call it the jitters. It's just as painful and just as miserable. We can die from that one, though, can't we? Yes. Yeah. Um, over the next 15 years, what did he not do and seldom did what? During the sub- subsequent 15 years, I had sense enough to never to go to the hospital if I had been drinking, and very seldom did I receive patients. Thank goodness. Um, you know, he was a proctologist. And everyone in the town kind of knew that he was a drunk. And there was like this running joke in the hospital that uh, everybody was betting their ass when they went to Dr. Bob for surgery. Uh, where would he hide during the day? On occasions, he would do what? I would sometimes hide out in one of the clubs w- of which I was a member. And I had a habit at times of registering at a hotel under a fictitious name. What usually happened? But my friends usually found me, and I would go home if they promised that I should not be scolded. (laughs) Next paragraph. What would he do when his wife, Annie, would plan to be away? If my wife was planning to go out in the afternoon, I would get a large supply of liquor and smuggle it home and hide it in the coal bin, the clothes chute, over door jams, over beams in the cellar, and in cracks in the cellar tile. Oh, my God, he was good at that, wasn't he? What else did he make use of? I would also make use of old trunks and chests, the old can container, and even the ash container. Um, What did he never use and why? I also, oh, wait. The water tank on the toilet I never used because that looked too easy. I found Uh, out later that. That was good. Um, You can answer this question while you're at it. Why was he so lucky there? Oh, sorry. I found out later that my wife inspected it frequently. What else did he hide small bottles in? I used to put 8 or 12-ounce bottles of alcohol in a fur-lined glove and toss it onto the back airing porch when uh, winter days got dark enough. Um, what would his bootlegger, what would his, what would Flacco, what would <laughs> Flacco do for him? <laughs> My bootlegger had hidden alcohol at the back steps where I could get to, get at it I had or one of get those. it at my convenience. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes he would mess up and bring it home How? Sometimes I would bring it in my pockets, but, but they were inspected, and that became too risky. What else did he use to do? I used also to put it up four-ounce four ounce bottles and stick several in my stocking tops. 
When did this great idea quit working? This worked nicely until my wife and I went to see um, Wallace Berry, the tugboat Annie, <laughs> after which the pant leg and stocking racket were out. What will he not? What will we not learn of? I will not take space to relate all my hospital or sanitarium experience. So this is open for conversation, uh, experience, and if you see something here that relates to another part of the book, let's bring that up. Because the idea of the big book, remember, everything we're reading today is based on a lot of information that we've read a few hundred times before to bring it fresh and to keep us in our forefront. And we got Shay tonight. Hey, Shay. Hey, Bank Chase. Uh, yeah, I don't normally speak, but this chapter really spoke to me just because this is pretty much everything I went through. Um, I was that guy hiding bottles all over the house. I had a girlfriend that I tortured for years. <laughs> uh, she was constantly checking behind me, checking my pockets. You know, I would find more and more clever hiding spots, and uh, it became tiring really quickly. Uh, I checked myself into a lot of detoxes because I thought that was going to help, and every time I tried to quit, you know, I'd get those jitters. Shakes in the morning, having those alcoholic drinks in the morning, that sucked. But I'm just glad I don't have to live like that anymore. Uh, it took me a long time to realize the torture I put through her, put her through, uh, doing that to her every day. And, uh, you know, every day I get sober, it feels a little bit better, and I see all my past mistakes. But, you know, uh, I just thought it was crazy, all these things he did that... I did, like, exactly, and all the crazy hiding spots and things that I thought about, like, oh, no, I can't hide it there. That's too easy. So uh, that's all I have to say. Thanks for sharing. You know, I, I read a, from a pamphlet today. It was on uh, singleness of purpose and, and why that's so important for us. And, and Bill said the reason that is is because us untreated alcoholics are so darn delusional, you know. We will find one little crack in the wall that says, well, I'm not alcoholic because of this, you know. So Dr. Bob is just sort of like a final hundred million nails in the coffin for me to like, I related to this guy so much. You know, I used to hide stuff in the sockets, pull the thing off. And after about three or four lights going off all the time, my roommate finally caught up on me. I kept blowing the fuses when I put them in there. But uh, <laughs> the extent that I went through and... You know, it took what it took me. If, if I picked up a white chip every time I tried to quit before I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, I literally could tile the bathroom floor, you know. Luckily, I slowed down when I find, finally found AA. Did I see a hand back there? Sure did. Oh, yeah. hi. Hey, hey, do I bring your pick up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, hi, my name is Sean. Hey, Sean. Um, I just, from reading this, I just thought it was, it just reminded me of, like, how bad I got with my, uh, with my addiction. I used to... Um, it's funny how you said, like, we turn into chemists. I used to, like, be so paranoid about hiding everything that I would, like, actually mix whatever I was using into my jewel pod. And I'd actually, like, be able to smoke my drugs while I'm, like, working or anything else like that so my girlfriend wouldn't find out. Um, I'd put things, like, in my hair. Like, I had longer hair, so I would, like, tighten my hair. And it just, like, it just got to a point where I was just, like, this is ridiculous. Like, if I put half that energy into, like, hiding as I did into my actual normal life, I'd be a lot farther. Um, but, yeah, that's just... Reading that just—it just reminded me how exhausting the whole process is of just trying to like sneak your, you know, sneak your habit. It's just so much more freeing and everything like that. Now you're just out in the open. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah, thanks for sharing. 
I'm going to read something real quick. We, we, I don't think we read this when we read this. We're in the part of the book called The Pioneers. Now, you guys have the little mini bookies, and, and they took those stories out. But remember, when this book went out in 1939. It was mailed to everyone, everywhere, small towns, big towns. And they didn't have, like Broward County, 764 meetings a week. There was, another, there was no alcoholics anywhere. So this is how you started to relate. So even before you probably started reading the first 164 pages, perhaps you started reading the stories in the back. And, and that gets you used to it. It's like going to a meeting here and other people talk about their experiences. Part one, Pioneers of AA. This group of 10 stories shows the sobriety AA can be lasting. You know, this is, this is the um, Dr. Bob and nine men and women who were to tell their stories were among the early members of AA's first groups. All 10 have now passed away of natural causes, having maintained complete sobriety. Today, hundreds of additional AA members can be found who have had no relapse in more than 50 years. All of these then are now pioneers of AA. They bear the witness, and the release of alcoholism can be permanent. So imagine you're a drunk. You haven't done the steps. You 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 went to the middle, started reading the stories, and you're reading Dr. Bob's, and, and this is your drinking. You're getting primed already early on to start seeing yourself in these people. You know, we're not looking for people that we don't you know, are similar. We're looking for people that we're similar with. So this guy just opened the door for me personally. Okay. Uh, I'm Vinny. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hi, Vinny. Um, so um, I'm not going to point out all the instances, but just in the, uh, you know, the, the few pages we read about Dr. Bob, you know, it talks about, how, you know, he had the problems from drinking and, you know, then he would be able to stay dry for a little bit, you know, get away from the alcohol, get things sort of back together and how it kind of got worse. And then he'd get it kind of back together and it just kind of got worse again. And it just brought me back to the beginning of the book. In the uh, doctor's opinion, uh, I believe this is page 25, but everyone probably knows this. I'll just read this really quick, though. Um, Let's see where I'll start. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive. While they admit that it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the truth from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems like the only one. They're restless, irritable, and discontented. Unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, which comes by at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. I guess I probably should have started reading here. But after they have succumbed to desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. Um, I don't know. That's um, just sitting here, uh, you know, reading this. um, You know, there's multiple instances from when he was just, you know, before he went to college and into college, getting out of college, going back into college, into his profession, out of his profession, you know, and I see it, um, you know, uh, a lot, a lot in my life and, and the, the people around me, you know, uh, alcoholism, I'm an alcoholic, obviously, uh, and, uh, you know, 
Um, I guess it just really emphasizes the sole purpose of the group, you know, to have this, this psychic change that we talk about, um, you know, because we put ourselves and like some other people have mentioned others into, um, you know, some pretty terrible stuff. Um, but yeah, thank you for letting me share. No, it, sure. it talks about he had 15 trips to detoxes and rehabs, right? And there was no program of recovery back then. You know, I, I went into AA and, and I had the choice to go anyway. But imagine you guys getting out of detoxes and, and rehabs and there was no program of recovery other than a vision board and process groups. And then being told, now, just don't drink. And <laughs> don't forget equine therapy. We got horse therapy. They got, you know, all the stuff, there was no program of recovery. Imagine how desperate it must have been back then. Hi, Steve. Hey, alcoholic Steve. Hey, Steve. <clears throat> a couple of the things that I wanted to mention on it was that I finally got to go to Dr. Bob's house, and he was pretty ingenious in throwing the little gloves. They've got one laying on the back porch. Do they have little signs pointed with arrows? <clears throat> they actually have stuff? a glove laying on the outside of the, his bathroom. has a door on the second floor that opens to a little porch, and there's a fur-lined glove with a few ounce <laughs> bottle sitting outside the door. and. <clears throat> Oh, cool. That that made me think, though, like how sneaky he was. He knew she'd be waiting at home, you know, and, and every day that she'd search him. So he turned his wife into like a, a parole officer, you know, that he'd get shook down when he walked in the door. And he outsmarted her by throwing it to the second floor so that once she fell asleep, he could slip into the bathroom and drink, you know, on the toilet or something fancy oh. like that um, and not get caught. But the part... <laughs> I mean, I can relate to a lot of it. The part that really caught my eye and that I've always kind of hazed over was that it says on 171, this routine went on with few interruptions for 17 years. And I mean, just in a few words, he, you know, he, he spends all these pages describing what happened. In a few words, he says that went on for like almost two decades without interruption, where he would get sober for a little bit. Like he knew he had to stop in college. And this went on for his almost his entire career that he just couldn't stop drinking, you know, and nothing would stop him. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much what I wanted to point out. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, my runs without adult supervision usually lasted like five years. I don't see how these guys lasted 17 years. Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Ryan. Um, so the part that really stuck out to me in this is when he's talking about uh, taking the sedatives to try and ease the cravings um, and then how it would make him worse and he wouldn't go to work and um, how he instead he would just disappear for a couple of days until his friends would come and get him and then tell him that he wouldn't get in trouble. Um, that definitely reminded me of my, my habits of, you know, like I would just just get up, leave my apartment and just leave for two weeks, you know, and, not, and just disappear, not answer my phone, not talk to anybody. Um, and then eventually someone would end up tracking me down somehow and have to convince me to, like, just return to normal life. Um, the other part that I found pretty interesting in this uh, was that he spent so much time hiding something that everybody knew about. Mm -hmm. um, so I just find that really interesting, and it, it makes me think of, like, all the times that, like, I would go to work and be, like, high out of my mind and think that I was being super sneaky about it, but everybody knew, you know? So 
I mean, like the amount of effort they put into hiding that and he, just to get searched by his wife every night. So obviously she knew something was up. Um, so that's all I've got. Thank you. Yeah, it's only the sure. drunk alcoholic who thinks nobody can smell the vodka in their water bottle. <laughs> like, um, you know, we're talking about Bob, and there's that one where Bob was um, with, he had just come off of his run, right? And, and he needs to get somebody to work with. So him and Bob call the hospital. You know, Dr. Bob thinks he's like, nobody knows about his drinking. And they call the head nurse and the drunk department tell them you know they've got this cure for alcoholism you got a drunk we can work with and her exact response was how about you dr bob maybe you should try it you know <laughs> which just blew his mind but that's how we got aa number three hi matt i'm matt i'm an alcoholic hey matt yeah. um so reading this always brings back um something happened when I, had, I had like maybe three months sober and someone told me to read page 417 in the book which really upset me because someone was telling me what to do. Mm. Um, but then I read the story, and it's like this doctor who's doing uppers, downers, and drinking. And I know when I first came in, I struggled to I struggled to admit that, like, although I did a lot of drugs, that I drank alcoholically. And when I read stuff like this, Dr. Bob's Nightmare, the story on page 417, and then even in Bill's story where it talks about sedatives and drink, it, it helped me... Um, I think really get to a point where I could understand that, like, you know, I should I should give this thing a shot. That like it's not just about one thing or another, but that maybe this could work for me. Um, personally, I related to your Flacco comment. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. I stole Thanks that. For in case you heard that one. So next week we're going to see him go into uh, some more struggles to get sober. Who's got more than one white chip? Yeah, you know, we're not alone. That's more than 50% of us, right? And don't forget, they didn't have white chips back in the day, did they? So, you know, how many people were they white chipping without getting white chips back in the day, you know? A lot of people do their attempts to control and enjoy without coming to a meeting and then come to a meeting and say, I've, I've been trying it for the past 10 years. I'm an alcoholic. Help me. And boom, they, they get a white chip and they never do it. I came in here thinking I was a problem-heavy hard drinker, and if I could just not get caught, I would be fine. Hence, many white chips till I got it and stuff like that. So we're going to find that a lot of us are like Doc. I'm more of a Dr. Bob than a Bill W. I can say that, definitely, for sure. Dr. Bob and the good old nightmare. Yeah, good. So we're going to start wrapping up. Uh, next week, we're going to continue on with Dr. Bob. Let's give Robert a, a rouse of applause for his... And where do we go from here? I gotta remember this. I don't lose this page. Closing. You're, you're standing there for a reason, aren't you? Uh, from a vision for you, God will kind of look like one of those piano bar people. Uh, God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask Him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But you obviously cannot transmit something you haven't got. So, so see to it that your relationship with Him. God is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great news fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. You know, it is the practice of the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group for group member sponsors to introduce their new sponsees by presenting them with a sponsorship medallion. So if you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and you got a new sponsee and you're like, want to introduce them to the family of Alcoholics Anonymous, come on up. we got a little medallion you can give them. It's, it's a kind of a cool thing. On the front, we got... Uh, Dr. Bob and Bill W, 12-stop and uh, Bill D, A, and number three. And on the back, it says it's really cool stuff. 
Um, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing, sharing experience, strength, and hope. Hi. Fuzzy part. Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, um, so I met Megan on Thursday. Uh, we've met up and we've read through the, the uh, forward. The forwards. Um, we're meeting Wednesday to do doctor's opinion. She's really excited to start going through the work and she's really excited to get involved. So everybody gets to know Megan. Hi. Hey, I, I want to introduce Todd to everybody. Uh, Todd is a, a gentleman that I've had the opportunity to sit down and read the book with a couple times, and I'd encourage you to get to know him and, and uh, get his number and introduce yourself. So, Todd, it's been an honor and a, a privilege to read with you so far. Let's, let's do it. Sorry, I just Can I see a show of hands stuff. of folks willing and wanting and needing to sponsor? who has been through the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, ready to pass on. Good. If you need a sponsor, those are the folks you can talk to. And who needs a sponsor, raise your hand. And if you're shy, just go talk to the we person got, who hands your do, hands up. We do have one. Yes. Oh, Tanisha. Sorry. Oh, sorry. All right. Here you go. Hi, Is it great? Did he turn it off on you? Hi, my name is Tanisha. Now, if you got the people on the Internet. Yeah, we can. Sure. Huh? Oh, Internet people, that's right. They do count as well. Yeah, I'm so sorry for those out there. Huh? <laughs> so I'd like to introduce Tyrell. Um, I've known Tyrell for quite a bit. I've been working with him, just, you know, trying to encourage him, trying to um, just be a walking example. And that's all I can give him. You know, I just do this walk and um, just hope that he really sees, you know, where I've been and where I've come from. We have similar paths and we have probably crossed each other's paths um, plenty of times. But, um, you know, I just let God do the work and I'm just here to serve. So please help me welcome Tyrell. Boom. All right. <laughs> Is anyone celebrating a year or more of sobriety that would like a medallion? Anyone? Okay. How about anybody picking up next week? Anybody got a year or more next week that would like to arrange for a medallion party? None. Good. Don't can I see a, uh, Can all home group members raise your hands? Cool. Hope to see you guys stick around and help tear down the room afterwards. If you'd like to become a member of this group, please join us after the meeting to fill out a membership card. And we did that already. No, I didn't say that. We just okay. did that. Uh, great. We will see. Okay. Thank you for joining us tonight. Hope to see you next week. But don't forget, this Thursday downstairs in the big fellowship room is our Alcoholics in God Step Series workshop. That starts at 7.15, but of course, we're here at, 7, we're here at 5.30 to help set the room up. We, ch we chatter, we talk, we have fun. It's a great opportunity to get to know each other. Uh, the official fellowship starts at 6.30, and the meeting's at 7.15. We got Peter M. on his ninth session, so come and check that one out. It's magnificent. It sure is. Who's in Thank after you. Peter? Um, we have Pat. Pat R. Oh, okay. Um, please wait. To, so, so if we can get everybody to wait till you're 75 feet away from the door in any direction before you start vaping or smoking. And we're going to close now with the Lord's Prayer. So if you all want to just take a moment to get quiet 
and culminated. Who's going to bring us from shame to, to grace if we allow him? It doesn't 
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Time in my life 
Leaves are green now, growing vines. They twist and turn each way, flowers blooming all the time. That's at my door. Never before. I had to change everything to realize that today is the best day of my life. Broken man, I travel far and wide through the great divide through his own heart. Yeah, well, I have a life today when it's given away, and it's just about to start. So I face each day. Brand new way, show up and plug in my guitar. And I play my songs, and people sing along, and stomp their feet and raise their arms. And here in this moment that we share, nothing could come. song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.